be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, chapters 14 and 15. In the previous chapters, Professor Aranax was shown the inner workings of the Nautilus by Captain Nemo. In the following chapters, our adventurers embark on a deep sea walk and marvel at the creatures and plants that they encounter. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 14 A Note of Invitation The next day was the 9th of November. I awoke after a long sleep of 12 hours. Concierge came, according to custom, to know how I had passed the night and to offer his services. He had left his friend, the Canadian, sleeping like a man who had never done anything else in all his life. I let the worthy fellow chatter as he pleased, without caring to answer him. I was preoccupied by the absence of the captain during our sitting of the day before and hoping to see him today. As soon as I was dressed, I went into the saloon. It was deserted. I plunged into the study of the shell treasures hidden behind the glasses. I reveled also in the great herbals filled with the rarest marine plants, which, although dried up, retained their lovely colours. Amongst these precious hydrophytes, I remarked some vorticillae, pavanari, delicate ceramides with scarlet tints, some fan-shaped agari, and some natabuli, like flat mushrooms, which at one time used to be classed as zoophytes. In short, a perfect series of algae. The whole day passed without my being honoured by a visit from Captain Nemo. The panels of the saloon did not open. Perhaps they did not wish us to tire of these beautiful things. The course of the Nautilus was E-N-E, a speed 12 knots, the depth below the surface between 25 and 30 fathoms. The next day, 10th of November, the same desertion the same solitude. 
I did not see one of the ship's crew. Ned and Concier spent the greater part of the day with me. They were astonished at the inexplicable absence of the captain. Was this singular man ill? Had he altered his intentions with regard to us? After all, as Concier said, we enjoyed perfect liberty. We were delicately and abundantly fed. Our host kept to his terms of the treaty. We could not complain, and indeed, the singularity of our fate reserved such wonderful compensation for us that we had no right to excuse it as yet. That day I commenced the journal of these adventures, which has enabled me to relate them with more scrupulous exactitude and minute detail. I wrote it on paper made from Zostra Marina. 11th of November, early in the morning, the fresh air spreading over the interior of the Nautilus told me that we had come to the surface of the ocean to renew our supply of oxygen. I directed my steps to the central staircase and mounted the platform. It was six o'clock. The weather was cloudy. The sea grey but calm. Scarcely a billow. Captain Nemo, whom I hoped to meet, would he be there? I saw no one but the steersman imprisoned in his glass cage. Seated upon the projection formed by the hull of the pinnace, I inhaled the salt breeze with delight. By degrees, the fog disappeared under the action of the sun's rays. The radiant orb rose from behind the eastern horizon. The sea flamed under its glance like a train of gunpowder. The clouds scattered into the heights were colored with lively tints of beautiful shades and numerous mare's tails, which betokened wind for that day. But what was wind to this Nautilus, which tempests could not frighten? I was admiring this joyous rising of the sun, so gay and so life-giving when I heard steps approaching the platform. I was prepared to salute Captain Nemo, but it was his second, whom I had already seen on the captain's first visit, who appeared. He advanced on the platform, not seeming to see me. With his powerful glass to his eye, he scanned every point of the horizon with great attention. This examination over, he approached the panel and pronounced a sentence in exactly these terms. I have remembered it, for every morning it was repeated under exactly the same conditions. It was thus worded. Nortron, Respok, Lorni, Verge. What it meant, I could not say. These words pronounced, the second descended. I thought that the Nautilus was about to return to its submarine navigation. 
I regained the panel and returned to my chamber. Five days sped thus, without any change in our situation. Every morning I mounted the platform. The same phrase was pronounced by the same individual, but Captain Nemo did not appear. I had made up my mind that I should never see him again, when, on the 16th of November, on returning to my room with Ned and Concierge, I found upon my table a note addressed to me. I opened it impatiently. It was written in a bold, clear hand, the characters rather pointed, recalling the German type. The note was worded as follows. 16th of November, 1867. To Professor Aranax, on board the Nautilus. Captain Nemo invites Professor Aranax to a hunting party, which will take place tomorrow morning in the forests of the island of Crespo. He hopes that nothing will prevent the professor from being present, and he will with pleasure see him joined by his companions. Captain Nemo, commander of the Nautilus. A hunt, exclaimed Ted. And in the forests of the island of Crispo, added Concier. Oh, then the gentleman is going on terra firma, replied Ned Land. That seems to me to be clearly indicated, said I, reading the letter once more. Well, we must accept, said the Canadian. But once more, on dry ground, we shall know what to do. Indeed, I shall not be sorry to eat a piece of fresh venison. Without seeking to reconcile what was contradictory between Captain Nemo's manifest aversion to islands and continents, and his invitation to a hunt in a forest, I consented myself with replying, Let us first see where the island of Crespo is. I consulted the planisphere, and in 32 degrees 40 feet north latitude, and 150 degrees 50 feet west longitude, I found a small island, recognized in 1801 by Captain Crespo, and marked in the ancient Spanish maps as Roca de la Plata, the meaning of which is the Silver Rock. We were then about 1800 miles from our starting point and the course of the Nautilus, a little changed, was bringing it back towards the southeast. I showed this little rock, lost in the midst of the North Pacific, to my companions. If Captain Nemo does sometimes go on dry ground, said I, he at least chooses desert islands. Ned Land shrugged his shoulders without speaking, and Concier and he left me. After supper, which was served by the steward, mute and impassive, I went to bed, not without some anxiety. The next morning, the 17th of November, on awakening, I 
I felt that the Nautilus was perfectly still. I dressed quickly and entered the saloon. Captain Nemo was there, waiting for me. He rose, bowed, and asked me if it was convenient for me to accompany him. As he made no allusion to his absence during the last eight days, I did not mention it, and simply answered that my companions and myself were ready to follow him. We entered the dining room, where breakfast was served. Monsieur Aranax, said the captain. Pray, share my breakfast without ceremony. We will chat as we eat, for though I promised you a walk in the forest, I did not undertake to find hotels there. So breakfast as a man who will most likely not have his dinner till very late. And slices of holothuridae, excellent zoophytes, and different sorts of seaweed. Our drink consisted of pure water, to which the captain added some drops of fermented liquor extracted by the Kamskatcha method from a seaweed known under the name of Rhodomenia palmata. Captain Nemo ate at first without saying a word. Then he began. Sir, when I proposed to you to hunt in my submarine forest of Crespo, you evidently sought me mad. Sir, you should never judge lightly of any man. But Captain, believe me, be kind enough to listen, and you will then see whether you have any cause to accuse me of folly and contradiction. I listen. You know as well as I do, Professor, that man can live underwater, providing he carries with him a sufficient supply of breathable air. In submarine works, the workman, clad in an impervious dress, with his head in a metal helmet, receives air from above by means of forcing pumps and regulators. That is a diving apparatus, said I. Just so. But under these conditions, the man is not at liberty. He is attached to the pump which sends him air through an India rubber tube. And if we were obliged to be thus held to the Nautilus, we would not go far and the means of getting free, I asked. It is to use the Roquerol apparatus, invented by two of your own countrymen, which I have brought to perfection for my own use, and which will allow you to risk yourself under these new physiological conditions, without any organ whatever suffering. It consists of a reservoir of thick iron plates in which I store the air under a pressure of 50 atmospheres. This reservoir is fixed on the back by means of braces, like a soldier's knapsack. Its underpart forms a box in which the air is kept by means of bellows and therefore cannot escape unless at its normal tension. In the Roquerol apparatus such as we use, two Indian rubber pipes leave this box and join a sort of tent which holds the nose and mouth. One is to introduce fresh air, 
the other to let out the fowl, and the tongue closes one or the other according to the wants of the respirator. But I, in encountering great pressures at the bottom of the sea, was obliged to shut my head like that of a diver in a ball of copper. And it is to this ball of copper that two pipes, the inspirator and expirator, open. Perfectly, Captain Nemo. But the air that you carry with you must soon be used, when it only contains 15% of oxygen. It is no longer fit to breathe. Right. But I told you, Monsieur Aranax, that the pumps of the Nautilus allow me to store the air under considerable pressure. And on those conditions, the reservoir of the apparatus can furnish breathable air for nine or ten hours. I have no further objections to make, I answered. I will only ask you one thing, Captain. How can you light your road at the bottom of the sea? With the Rumkoff apparatus, Monsieur Aranax, one is carried on the back, the other is fastened to the waist. It is composed of a Bunsen pile, which I do not work with the brochamite of potash, but with sodium. A wire is introduced which collects the electricity produced and directs it towards a particularly made lantern. In this lantern is a spiral glass which contains a small quantity of carbonic gas. When the apparatus is at work, this gas becomes luminous, giving our white and continuous light. Thus provided, I can breathe and I can see. Captain Nemo, to all my objections, you make such crushing answers that I dare no longer doubt you. But if I am forced to admit the Roqueroll and Rumkoff apparatus, I must be allowed some reservations with regard to the gun I am to carry. But it is not a gun for powder, answered the captain. Then it is an air gun. Doubtless. How would you have me manufacture gunpowder on board without either saltpetre, sofa, or charcoal? Besides, I added, to fire underwater in a medium 855 times denser than air, we must conquer very considerable resistance. That would be no difficulty. They exist guns, according to Fulton, perfected in England by Philip Coles and Burley, in France by Fursi, and in Italy by Landy, which are furnished with a peculiar system of closing, which can fire under these conditions. But I repeat, having no powder, I use air under great pressure, which the pumps of the Nautilus furnish abundantly. But this air must be rapidly used. Well, have I not my Roqueroll reservoir, which can furnish it at need? A tap is all that is required. Besides, Monsieur Aranax, you must see yourself that, during our submarine under, we can spend but little air and but few balls. 
But it seems to me that in this twilight, and in the midst of this fluid, which is very dense compared with the atmosphere, shots could not go far, nor easily prove mortal. Sir, on the contrary, with this gun, every blow is mortal, and however lightly the animal is touched, it falls as if struck by a thunderbolt. Why? Because the balls sent by this gun are not ordinary balls, but little cases of glass invented by Liedenbrock, an Austrian chemist, of which I have a large supply. These glass cases are covered with a case of steel and weighted with a pellet of lead. They are real laden bottles into which the electricity is forced to a very high tension. With the slightest shock, they are discharged, and the animal, however strong it may be, falls dead. I must tell you that these cases are size number four, and that the charge for an ordinary gun would be ten. I will argue no longer, I replied, rising from the table. I have nothing left me but to take my gun. At all events, I will go where you go. Captain Nemo then led me aft, and in passing before Ned's and Concier's cabin, I called my two companions, who followed immediately. We then came to a kind of cell near the machinery room, in which we put on our walking dress. Chapter 15 A Walk on the Bottom of the Sea This cell was, to speak correctly, the arsenal and wardrobe of the Nautilus. A dozen diving apparatuses hung from the partition, waiting for our use. Ned Land, on seeing them, showed evident repugnance to dress himself in one. But, my worthy Ned, the forests of the island of Crespo are nothing but submarine forests. Good, said the disappointed harpooner, who saw his dreams of fresh meat fade away. And you, Monsieur Aranax, are you going to dress yourself in those clothes? There is no alternative, Master Ned. As you please, sir, replied the harpooner, shrugging his shoulders. But as for me, unless I am forced, I will never get into one. No one will force you, Master Ned, said Captain Nemo. Is Concier going to risk it? asked Ned. I follow my master wherever he goes, replied Concier. At the captain's call, two of the ship's crew came to help us to dress in these heavy and impervious clothes, made of Indian rubber without seam, and constructed expressly to resist considerable pressure. One would have thought it a suit of armor, both supple and resisting. This suit formed trousers and waistcoat. The trousers were finished off with thick boots, weighted with heavy leaden soles. The texture of the waistcoat was held together by bands of copper 
which crossed the chest, protecting it from the great pressure of the water and leaving the lungs free to act. The sleeves ended in gloves, which in no way restrained the movement of the hands. There was a vast difference noticeable between these consummate apparatuses and the old cork breastplates, jackets, and other contrivances in vogue during the 18th century. Captain Nemo and one of his companions, a sort of Hercules who must have possessed great strength, Concier and myself were soon enveloped in the dresses. There remained nothing more to be done but to enclose our heads in the metal box. But before proceeding this operation, I asked the captain's permission to examine the guns we were to carry. One of the Nautilus men gave me a simple gun, the butt end of which, made of steel, hollow in the center, was rather large. It served as a reservoir for compressed air, which a valve, worked by a spring, allowed to escape into a metal tube. A box of projectiles, in a groove in the thickness of the butt end, contained about twenty of these electric balls, which, by means of a spring, were forced into the barrel of the gun. As soon as one was shot, another was ready. Captain Nemo, said I, this arm is perfect and easily handled. I only ask to be allowed to try it. But how shall we gain the bottom of the sea? At this moment, Professor, Sea Nautilus is stranded in five fathoms, and we have nothing to do but to start. But how shall we get off? You shall see. Captain Nemo thrust his head into the helmet. Concier and I did the same, not without hearing an ironical good sport from the Canadian. The upper part of our dress terminated in a copper collar upon which was screwed the metal helmet. Three holes protected by thick glass allowed us to see in all directions. By simply turning our head in the interior of the headdress, as soon as it was in position, the rock-roll apparatus on our backs began to act, and, for my part, I could breathe with ease. The Rumkorf lamp hanging from my belt, and the gun in my hand, I was ready to set out. But, to speak the truth, Imprisoned in these heavy garments, and glued to the deck by my leaden soles, it was impossible for me to take a step. But this state of things was provided for. I felt myself being pushed into a little room contiguous to the wardrobe room. My companions followed towed along in the same way. I heard a watertight door, furnished with stopper plates, close upon us, and we were wrapped in profound darkness. After some minutes, a loud hissing was heard. I felt the cold mount from my feet to my chest evidently from some part of the vessel they had, by means of a tap, 
given entrance to the water which was invading us, and with which the room was soon filled. A second door cut in the side of the Nautilus, then opened. We saw a faint light. In another instant, our feet trod the bottom of the sea. And now, how can I retrace the impression left upon me by that walk under the waters? Words are impotent to relate such wonders. Captain Nemo walked in front. His companion followed some steps behind. Concier and I remained near each other, as if an exchange of words had been possible through our metallic cases. I no longer felt the weight of my clothing or of my shoes, or of my reservoir of air, or of my thick helmet, in the midst of which my head rattled like an almond in its shell. The light which lit the soil thirty feet below the surface of the ocean astonished me by its power. The solar rays shone through the watery mass easily, and dissipated all colour, and I clearly distinguished objects at a distance of a hundred and fifty yards. Beyond that, the tints darkened into fine gradations of ultramarine, and faded into vague obscurity. Truly this water which surrounded me was but another air denser than the terrestrial atmosphere, but almost as transparent. Above me was the calm surface of the sea. We were walking on fine, even sand, not wrinkled as on a flat shore, which retains the impression of the billows. This dazzling carpet, really a reflector, repelled the rays of the sun with wonderful intensity, which accounted for the vibration which penetrated every atom of liquid. Shall I be believed when I say that, at the depth of thirty feet, I could see as if it were broad daylight? For a quarter of an hour, I trod on this sand, sown with the impalpable dust of shells. The hull of the Nautilus resembling a long shawl, disappeared by degrees, but its lantern, when darkness should overtake us in the waters, would help to guide us on board by its distinct rays. Soon forms of objects outlined in the distance were discernible. I recognized magnificent rocks, hung with a tapestry of zoophytes of the most beautiful kind, and I was at first struck by the peculiar effect of this medium. It was then ten in the morning. The rays of the sun struck the surface of the waves at rather an oblique angle and at the touch of their light, decomposed by refractions as though a prism, flowers, rocks, plants, shells, and polypi were shaded at the edges by the seven solar colors. It was marvelous, a feast for the eyes, 
this complication of coloured tints. A perfect kaleidoscope of green, yellow, orange, violet, indigo and blue. In one word, the whole palette of an enthusiastic colourist. Why could I not communicate to Concier the lively sensations which were mounting to my brain, and rival him in expressions of admiration? For what I knew, Captain Nemo and his companion might be able to exchange thoughts by means of signs previously agreed upon. So, for want of better, I talked to myself. I declaimed in the copper box which covered my head, thereby expending more air in vain words than was perhaps expedient. Various kinds of ices, clusters of pure tuft coral, prickly fungi, and anemones formed a brilliant garden of flowers enameled with porphyry, decked with their colorets of blue tentacles, sea stars studding the sandy bottom, together with astrophytons like fine lace embroidered by the hands of naiads, whose festoons were waved by the gentle undulations caused by our walk. It was a real grief to me to crush under my feet the brilliant specimens of mollusks which strewn the ground by thousands, of hammerheads, of donciae, veritable bounding shells, of staircases and red helmet shells, angel wings, and many others produced by this inexhaustible ocean. But we were bound to walk, so we went on, whilst above our heads waved the shawls of Physalides leaving their tentacles to float in their train. Medusae, whose umbrellas of opal or rose pink, escalloped with a band of blue, sheltered us from the rays of the sun and the fiery Pelagae, which, in the darkness, would have strewn our path with phosphorescent light. All these wonders I saw in the space of a quarter of a mile, scarcely stopping, and following Captain Nemo, who beckoned me on by signs. Soon the nature of the soil changed, to the sandy plain succeeded an extent of slimy mud, which the Americans call ooze composed of equal parts of silicious and calcareous shells. We then travelled over a plain of seaweed of wild and luxuriant vegetation. This sward was of a close texture and soft to the feet, and rivalled the softest carpets woven by the hand of man. But whilst verdure was spread at our feet, it did not abandon our heads. A light network of marine plants, of that inexhaustible family of seaweeds, of which more than two thousand kinds are known, grew on the surface of the water. I saw long ribbons of fuckers floating, some globular, others tuberous, lauraceae and cladostephi of most delicate foliage, and some rhodomenae palmati, 
resembling the fern of a cactus. I noticed that the green plants kept nearer the top of the sea, whilst the red were at a greater depth, leaving to the black or brown hydrophytes the care of forming gardens and partiers in the remote beds of the ocean. We had quitted the Nautilus about an hour and a half. It was near noon. I knew by the perpendicularity of the sun's rays, which were no longer refracting. The magical colors disappeared by degrees, and the shades of emerald and sapphire were effaced. We walked with a regular step, which rang upon the ground with astonishing intensity. The slightest noise was transmitted with a quickness to which the ear is unaccustomed on the earth. Indeed, water is a better conductor of sound than air, in the ratio of four to one. At this period, the earth sloped downwards. The light took a uniform tint. We were at a depth of a hundred and five yards and twenty inches, undergoing a pressure of six atmospheres. At this depth, I could still see the rays of the sun, though feebly, to their intense brilliancy had succeeded a reddish twilight, the lowest state between day and night, but we could still see well enough. It was not necessary to resort to the Rumkorff apparatus yet. At this moment, Captain Nemo stopped. He waited till I joined him, and then pointed to an obscure mass looming in the shadow at a short distance. It is the forest of the island of Crispo, thought I, and I was not mistaken.